Now we are continuing our series on the doctrine of church discipline. We have established what is the official confessional view concerning the discipline that is required through church censors. But I want us to begin to look at the more practical side of what goes on as we deal with church discipline. And one of the things that I want you to keep in mind is there is what we would call preventive or prescriptive church discipline. Church discipline often is only thought of in terms of that which is corrective. In other words, you don't hear about the good side of church discipline. What you hear about is the hard side. That which is involved in dealing with someone who will not repent of their sin, who persists to live in that sin before God. And it gets to the point where they go under either suspension and or excommunication from the church. And we'll deal with that whole question of excommunication and exactly what does the scripture say and how are we to respond to those who are excommunicated? What is the proper understanding of that? And just so you know, and I've repeated this before, we do not practice shunning in our denomination, nor do we believe it is taught in the Holy Scripture. There are things that the Scripture themselves tell us we cannot do. Now, you may say, well, I don't care what the Scripture says. You deal with God. Believe me, he will answer those issues. But I want to really begin with understanding the nature of what we do in church discipline, what it actually is, now that we've established the doctrinal principle of it within our confessional understanding and the historical practice of the church, which is the third mark of the church, not only the concept of a corporate discipline, but also within the concept of an individual private discipline. That the church, we have said, has got to be involved. And naturally, Matthew 18 brings you within the purview. If your brother sins against you, you have to go to him. If he will not hear you, you take witnesses. That's the church involved as individuals trying to correct problems. Now, when it's public, Matthew 18, 1 and 2 don't apply. When sin is public, then the prescription of discipline is public. And you bypass Matthew 18, 1 and 2. And you just move on to part 3. And so it is, it's very important to understand that. But we're going to be looking at the nature of this concept of discipline to really get an understanding of what's taking place. And you should know that you have been, since you've joined this church, under church discipline. But it's not corrective. It's been prescriptive. It's been that which 
is designed to develop your Christian walk with God in a way that would honor him. So it is, if you will, this, the eighth lecture in this series, and I want to look at that general concept of discipline, but more from a non-structure to what is actually the practical outworking of this in the life of the church. Let us go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We pray, O oh God, and ask that you give us clarity of thought. Give us hearts that yield to do what you command of us, to live in the way that you command us to live, to honor you in the way that you say that we ought to honor you, not with flattering words that have no meaning. Oh, how I love Jesus. But I could care less about my own sin, let alone the sins of others. That is not Christianity. Not according to your word. And anybody who would think so, we pray, oh God, you would save them from their thoughts, from their wickedness, from their rebellion to your word. Teach them to unite under the one authority and lordship of our sovereign God to do as he has commanded of us. We ask, O oh Father, that you would now give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive what your spirit and word would teach us, for we ask it in Christ's most holy and precious name. Amen. Well, we're looking at church discipline. What do we mean by church discipline? What does the very phrase or the terms mean when we talk about church discipline? Well, the number one passage, not necessarily the only important passage, but one of the number one passages people immediately think of is in the area of Matthew chapter 18 and verses 15 through 20. Listen to what our Lord says. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, it is a private sin, one-to-one, not public. Now, if he publicly sins, then you don't even do this. But this is a one-to-one. He has privately sinned against you. It's not public. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Take him aside and say, now look, you've sinned against me. This is how you have faltered yourself by taking this action. If he hears you, that is, if he will receive what you have said, that point of correction. You see, everybody in the church is involved in church discipline. You can't escape it. When's the last time you have ever done church discipline in your Christian walk? Or are you telling me no one's ever sinned against you? Which I think is nearly impossible, but that would be basically the telltale story of your actions or non-actions. But if he hears you, 
You have what? Gained your brother. You've restored him. That was the purpose. Restoration. Church discipline is always designed around restoration. But if he will not hear you, if he will not hearken to what you've said, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, which the Old Testament law required you to do, every word may be established. That is to say, everything that you say, that is his sin, and his response to your confrontation may be established by those who hear what takes place. And then he says, and if he refuses to hear them, he will not hearken to the voice of the one or to the many. Tell it to the church. Phase one, go to your brother. Phase two, bring witnesses if he will not hear you. Phase three, take it to the church to have them deal with it. Now, when you get to phase three, it's no longer private. It now has become a matter of something the church has to deal with. And as I've showed you from the teaching of our confession, it falls to the church officers that have been appointed to this very thing to deal with these issues. But then it goes on to say, what if he refuses even to hear the church? I'm not, I don't care what you say. I'm not going to repent. Maybe he stole a hundred bucks. I'm not going to repay it. What does it say? Let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. Let him be considered a heathen, a pagan, a non-Christian. In other words, you're nullifying his confession. And he says, wicked as a person who collects taxes and steals from you. One who is Hated in life. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. This is what the church has the authority to do. I didn't take that authority upon myself. It was thrusted upon me by my Lord. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. This is the basis of saying the church as it is gathered together, when it comes together, it comes as with divine authority. As both the corporate church individuals having this responsibility to deal with those who sin against them, and as the church dealing with it from the perspective of correcting the problems. Now, the term disciple and discipline have a common meaning 
in their principled use. When you say discipline, it means the same thing as disciple. It means to direct, or if you will, to redirect an individual in the way that they think and behave. Not just think. You think in order to change what? Behavior. We do this all the time, but not necessarily within a church concept. We do it in life. What do we call it? Education. Discipleship is training. It's education. That's all it is. The first structure of this is the teaching, the training, the discipling you in how to walk according to the word of God. The Old Testament term Musar and in its New Testament equivalent Padia speaks of education that can be either pleasant or sometimes it's painful. When you're talking about preventative discipline, it's pleasant. You're not under the gun. I mean, you're under the gun from Scripture to ensure you're walking with the Lord rightfully, but you're not under corrective discipline. Hebrews 12, if you will, beginning at verse 5, here the writer of Hebrews, which I believe is St. Paul, says this, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. God chastens his own. He corrects. He disciplines his sons, his children. Those who say that they are of Christ, if they are truly children of God, he's going to correct them. Just as you say, this is my son or this is my daughter, and I love them, then you will chasten them. He who will not chasten his son or daughter does not love them. Can't. Because you're not teaching them the fifth commandment. And you're not teaching them to understand ideas have consequences. And so do their actions. He says, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Don't be discouraged. The correction is to realign you to what you're to do. We never look at God and say, as so many times you hear children, I hate my parents. Why? They hate the discipline. But the exhortation is not to be discouraged when you rebuke. For whom the Lord loves, there's the key. If the Lord loves them, he's going to chasten them. How? Don't know. He could do a lot of things. He could destroy your marriage. He could have your children die. 
He can do horrible things, minor things. I don't know. But if you're his child, he's going to do whatever he needs to do to drive you to do what he has commanded of you. And sometimes those are hard things. Why does he choose to do certain things? He just doesn't tell me. None of my business, in essence. Neither would it be yours. I know one thing. All my life, I've lived in fear that if I did not try to do what was right by my family, that I would come under the discipline of God. And I've always tried to hearken to his voice. I've tried to teach everyone to hearken to the voice of God. And the voice of God is what is given to us in Scripture unequivocally. And yet his spirit agrees with the word and it confirms in my very heart, I need to hear, I need to receive. And when he gets my attention, and boy, he has a way of doing that. It may not even be your family, it may be you. He strikes down. Could be a heart attack, could be a stroke. Could be lops one of your arms off. That's why we call you lefty. Could be a lot of reasons. The question is, what does he have to do to get your attention? What does he have to do to get your attention? Because believe me, he will get your attention. You better be paying attention. Because he's going to get your attention. And the more you ignore it, the more he will chasten you. Just like your child. Well, he stole something. Well, then you better discipline him. And when you do, and he don't listen, you discipline him a little bit more. You up the ante, as it were. Okay? Last time, I made you pay it back. This time, you're getting a whipping. You're going to your room. And each time something happens, you up the ante. Why? You're trying to break a bad habit that is, according to the Word of God, considered sin. That's what bad habits are. They're sinful. They're sinful practices. And as Jay Adams says, the principle behind all counseling is to get you to drop the bad habits and to put on the good habits. The one that the scripture says, this is what you need to be doing, how you need to act. Now we're talking about the chasing of the Lord. The question is, what will he have to do to get you to drop that which is sinful to do that which is righteous? And so he says... For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with a son. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, now listen to the reasoning. 
Think about your life. If you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate. Or if you're reading the King James Bible, it says you're a bastard. That's what the word means. You're an illegitimate son. You're a bastard. You didn't have a real father. You were conceived out of wedlock. Without a father, legitimately. And not sons. You are not sons. Which is why Peter said daily, make your calling an election sure of God. Because if God isn't disciplining your life, if he isn't chastening you, if he isn't directing you down the path of righteousness, you better start checking your salvation at the door because you've got a real problem on your hands. And while you may have thought you were a son, you're not. You're just a bastard making a false profession of faith in the church of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, he says, we have had human fathers who correct us and we paid them respect because they did discipline us. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of the spirits and live? Listen to the consequences. You heard Pastor Jason say this earlier. Sin brings forth, when it has fully conceived itself, what? Death. But if you hearken to the chasing of the Lord, what does it bring? Life. For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them, that he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. God chastens us so that we walk apart from this world, not as a participational person in the sin of this world. We are of the world, but not of the world. We can't help but live in it, but we don't have to partake of its sin. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. No chastening seems to be pleasant. But it has a purpose. Notice what he says, but painful. Like I told you, he used to say in the old days, this is going to hurt me worse than it's going to hurt you. But I'd never seen my parents cry when they whipped me. I cried because it hurt. I didn't understand why it hurt. I wasn't acting like a son in obedience. So there is no joy for the present. The Bible says sin is pleasant for a season. You wouldn't do it if it hurt, would you? If sin was like sticking your finger in a light socket, you wouldn't do it. It hurts. It's not. It's pleasurable. That's the real problem. 
But when God disciplines you, or when your father or mother disciplines you as a child, it's not joyful. It's painful. Nevertheless, says Paul, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, to those who have been, what, disciplined by it have been taught, educated. Believe it or not, discipline is a form of education. You know why? Because it says this is the penalty for your sin. And you have to be disciplined because it will train you. It will teach you something. My oldest daughter, I'll never forget, I wanted to teach her a lesson about gambling, and I bet her that I could do something against everything she had. She was all in. All of her toys. All of her money. I got it all. Taught her a really important lesson. She doesn't gamble to this day. You only got to teach it once. And the only thing she had to play with was two unsharpened number two pencils. And after three days, at the urging of my wife, I relented and gave her everything back and said, now learn a lesson. Gambling can have a dire effect upon your life. You can't afford to give away what you don't have or the last of what you do have. We do not gamble our life away. So it is with discipline. Discipline is from God. It's an education. It trains you. It disciples you to be holy, to be a real son, to be a child of God. Now, granted, we don't walk up to people in the church and say, you're a real bastard. You know that? We're not that horrible. We really aren't. We start by saying, hey, if God is disciplining you, you better listen to God. You better pay attention. Because he's going to say something that I, being nice and kind, just wouldn't necessarily say but God does. And you don't want him to say that. Because the only end for you is not only physical death, eternal death. If you died this next moment, where would you be? Not where do you hope to be, where would you be? Based on your life. Tell me. Does your life show yourself to be a real child of God? Where would you be? Daily make your calling the election sure. Am I walking in the righteousness of God? That's the question. What is God trying to teach me? Am I 
learning my lesson well? Am I getting educated? Am I following the book? He's not going to teach you something apart from the book. The Spirit of God, that is the Spirit that will teach you who indwells you, is the one who wrote the book. He's going to lead you by the book. And if you've been transformed and he lives within you, he's going to teach you to conform to that written word. And if you don't, you saying, I'm a Christian, is really ridiculous. It's like being able to say that the leopard can change his spots, that I can change the color of my skin. Well, let me take that back. In the day we live in, you can declare yourself to be, I guess, anything you want to be. But the reality is, just because you say it, it doesn't take place. I love rhythm and blues music. And Enro thinks I'm still crazy when I say I've got to have somewhere black blood in me. And he said, Captain, you're the wrong color. Wishing it so does not make it so. And so it is. This term, chastening, is from that Greek word paideia, which translates tutoring, education, training. It is God's way of teaching us how to walk right with him. If it's absent, you got a problem. All biblical education, though, is what? It is designed to produce what? The right kind of fruit. Good works. Read Ephesians chapter 2. You were chosen in Christ, transformed to his image, being renewed in him, ordained what? First in. To walk in good works. So what is God's educational system doing? It's training you to produce the fruit of that spirit, those good works that were ordained for you to walk in. It's designed to develop the kind of thought which results in proper behavior. But some people will say, when they do wrong, oh, I'm sorry I did wrong. I won't do it again, and they do it again. After the fifth or sixth time, you begin to say, I don't believe you. There's nothing. You can hope, you can wish, but you aren't changing your behavior. 
it's not real. God's education changes your thinking, resulting in a biblical or proper behavior that is befitting a Christian. In this line of thinking, then, consider the concept of education in the abstract. Whose education do you want in your life? In the life of your children, in the life of your home. If you can't educate and discipline yourself, if God isn't doing that, you'll never see it in the life that you live and those you're associated with, including your own home. You won't strengthen it, you'll destroy it. What is this fruit that seeks for this concept of education? Biblical education, <coughs> excuse me, is instruction in the things of life the way that God says we are to live our life. It includes the knowledge which comes in truth. We talk about it being a world life view, a Christian philosophy of life, a right way of thinking. It results in what? Ethics, having values that God says, these are the laws that I command you to put into practice in your life. I spent 150 some sermons preaching on it. The assistant pastors have been teaching on it. The law of God is the measuring stick. Man, if you're not conforming to the law of God, what are you conforming to? Because it's, if it's against the law of God, it's sin. For John tells us in 1 John that sin is the transgression of God's moral law. It deals with values. A biblical education produces the fruit of knowledge and ethics with the wisdom of applying them rightly in life. That's what real discipline begins as. Education, instruction. How to live your life before God. These standards are based on God's written word. This is why we are educating. This is why you come to church. You're being taught the word of God. You're being taught how to live the word of God. I didn't say you were going to be great at it. You may struggle, but that's the whole point. You're struggling. You're fighting. What is that negative side of sanctification? Mortification of sin. What is it? Trying to put your sin to death. What's the positive side? Putting on the righteousness of Christ. Walking by his spirit, trying to live according to the standard of God's righteousness, which is what? What is that bar? The Ten Commandments, as they are summed up for us, dealing with the whole moral aspect of God's law. The benefit to the individual who will live out this knowledge of truth and the ethical standards demonstrating such wisdom. When you do it, you show you have real wisdom. 
person has no wisdom that can violate the law of God. Doesn't have wisdom. He's got the foolishness of this age. He thinks he's smarter than God. So what does this wisdom bring forth? It's real simple. It brings peace. Peace to the life they live. Romans 8, 6. For to be cardinally minded, that is to live according to the desires of the flesh, to violate the law of God is what? Death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It brings peace. It brings a calmness to your soul that you are resting in the promises of God. And you know that because your life conforms to his standard of righteousness. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that peace? Or are you tormented within? You cannot waver between two positions. You're either going to walk in the word of God or you're not. You're going to obey the word of God or you're not. You're going to be a son of God or a bastard. Take a choice. But that's the only thing God's word says you got to choose from. Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This kind of peace that is being spoken of can only be found as it is proclaimed in the word in the proper context of God's discipline, his education, his discipling of us as sons to be a real practitioner of the Christian life. If there is no peace, then education has fallen on deaf ears. In essence, there is no education. You haven't learned yet, have you? Not a good position to be in. This is the heart of the gospel that the Lord presented to us. Listen, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, zugos, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And yet he contrasts that with discipline. Boy, when you come and you take my yoke, the life that I give you to live, what you'll learn from me is this. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. You fight against my word. The yoke is not going to be 
easy. It's going to be hard. You know what the yoke is? That's that old thing they used to put around the steer or the cow's neck in order to pull the plow. The yoke was the burden that the creature had in plowing fields, working them. Thus he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light when you're walking in him. When you're doing what he tells you to do. When you're transgressing it, it's not light. It's not easy. And you can tell it by the way the people act. They are hateful. They despise people. They will lie. They will cheat. They will do everything they can do in life. They'll violate the God, law of God ten different ways. Why? Because they're under the yoke of sin and not the yoke that is given to us in Christ. They'll fight it. That's why you usually have to end up in a corrective problem of discipline. You're not acting like a child of God. You're acting like a illegitimate son, a bastard. Here we are being invited to be joined to Christ in the life that he lives and learn from him, to be taught by him, to be educated, if you will, by him. And being bound in Christ, you will learn to be balanced in your life. We are always growing in the school of Christ. We are being educated properly for the production of the right fruit and works that are created for us. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. He has all authority. He's judge. Going therefore, make disciples of all the nations. All the ethnos, your families, your kindred. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what he says. This is the evangelical outreach of the gospel. Teaching them. He didn't stop with the make disciple thing, i.e. some people think it's just getting people saved. No, no, no. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. I am with you. Teaching them to observe. That's to practice. Practice the Christian walk in the life that you live. We enroll in the church of Jesus Christ, in his school by baptism. Right into the very school. The church is the school of Christ. Then being taught, we learn as students how to be true disciples of Jesus Christ in all areas of our lives. We are called to be disciples 
not students only. This is our calling to persevere in our faith. He who doesn't persevere, not of Christ. He who perseveres, who pursues the righteousness of God in his life, he is a child. It is this kind of teaching that extends to our life, that extends to our life in the church and in Christ's school of education. Not just the building, but in the lives of his church, his people, the body. We are to be at peace with each other and with those outside of the church. Listen, Paul, 1 Corinthians 14.40. Let all things be done decently and in order. There is a right way to do things and there is an order to it. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. You lead a quiet life. To mind your own business. I love that. It's a time to mind your own business. Don't go getting in somebody else's business when you haven't taken care of your own life. And to work with your own hands as we have commanded you. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. Somebody's walking disorderly? Withdraw from them. I thought you were my friend. I want to be. But if you're not a friend of Christ, if you're not a son of God, you're illegitimate and I can't walk with you. How can two walk together, the Bible says, unless they be agreed? How can I have the spirit of God that says walk in righteousness and you walk in a different order of life? Withdraw. It's not an option. It's a command. We call it a didactic in theology. It is a command. You withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us, i.e. the tradition being that which we have taught and practiced if he doesn't want to walk according to the word of God, not the way he thinks, Paul says the way we taught you to think, withdraw from it. Not easy. Sometimes in life you have to withdraw. It's not what you want. You can like somebody. You know, there's people that I don't know if you've ever met them. When I grew up, they used to have a saying, man, that guy is so nice, he could stick a knife in your back and you'll still love him. Did you just, some people have that kind of personality. He's just a nice guy. But if he walks disorderly, you've got to withdraw from him. I don't care how nice he is. 2 Thessalonians 
For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they're just busybodies. They're doing everything but what they're called by Christ to do. Now, I came out of a denomination that used to say when you got yourself in trouble or in sin in particular, well, the way to do that is fill up your life with work. Be a busybody. Just butterfly around and do this and this and this, and that will take care of your sin. It doesn't take care of your sin, and it's the wrong prescription. Now, if you like that, it's like going to the doctor and saying, look, I'm having hearing problems, and he says, all right, tell you what, we're going to take you in, and we're going to take your left leg off. Well, what does that have to do with my hearing? Well, we don't know for sure, but we'll just lop it off, and we'll see. And they lop it off, and then he comes back, and they go, you know what, I still got this hearing problem. And he says, well, we'll take you in, and we'll lop the other leg off. They take the other leg off. Doctor brings you in and says, look, come over here, I'm going to talk to you. He can't move, and he says, wow, he lost his hearing altogether. Why? He can't walk. He can't move. So apparently he doesn't hear. Would you like that kind of a doctor? No. God gives you the prescription to how to walk in life according to his word in order to honor him, which is the real issue here, the honor and the love that we are showing to Christ by being obedient to his word. Biblical education, that is discipline, is designed for the welfare of the body of Christ. Therefore, the church must have discipline, both in the phase of instruction, which is preventative, and in correction, which we will be taking a look at. The offenders need to be quickly and efficiently dealt with and not allow their offenses to continue. That others would go, well, if he got away with that sin, I can get away with it. That's kind of a reasoning like the world. Well, if he robbed the bank, I could rob the bank. Bad reasoning. Repentance and reclaiming of all who profess faith in Christ is what is really the honor that is due unto God. In all of this education, we are always discipling people. What? Back to Christ. We're not asking them to do evil things. I mean, yeah, there's some churches that say, what kind of sin did you commit? Okay, that's 250 bucks, say, four Hail Marys. I'm not going to tell you what denomination that is. It gives you an idea. What is 250 bucks? That's the payment on the guy's car. That's what it is. That's a joke, by the way. Not a joke that they do that. There are churches that do that. The purpose 
of reclaiming someone is to disciple them back to Christ, to the honor of God. And you do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all based on the Word of God, according to the requirements that are given to His church. The failure of the church to discipline speaks loudly of that church's integrity. God forbid we would partake of somebody else's sin as a church. Never. Those churches who do not see the value in church discipline, they have no respect for God or Christ Jesus. They are existing in rebellion to God and denying the word of Jesus Christ. They're bastards. They are not children of God. They have no respect for the gospel and most likely preach at best a watered down form of the gospel. But the question even becomes why are they even considered a church at all? They don't have the mark of the church. Discipline. They are a stumbling block for Christians and are not helping them to grow in grace in the truth of God's word and their living of that word in their daily walk with Christ. But they're a stumbling block. They're a hindrance. They're covering for their sins. Find a church that says, oh, those people over there, they discipline. They must be a cult. And I'll show you a church that is no church at all. The real cult is the very one that said that. They don't love their people. They don't love God. They don't love Christ. Not whatsoever. Well, let me simply say in conclusion. Boy, I hit that right on the nose too. The honor of God is the duty of all individuals within the church. That is your calling to honor God. When we are doing the work of discipline correctly, we are caring for the church, that church body as a whole. Let us not forget that those who alone can bind the life of any individual into the word of God is those that have been given the gift and authority of the office that's why they are censors. But you know what they are before they're censors? They're educators. Congratulations. If you come here, you're in the church of Christ. You're in his school. How well are you learning? Are you listening? We're teaching. We're giving you instruction on how to live your life. That you may glorify God. We all should care for the souls of those who profess faith in Christ. But we cannot usurp the authority given to us in the church in this matter of discipline. Yet there remains a place for biblical counseling in that right and proper context. That's what we do in Christian counseling. We're fixing problems of sinful behavior. We're taking bad habits and exchanging them for the good habits that the Bible says we're to walk in. 
Christian counseling is fixing people in their Christian walk. It's what it is. The question is, are you doing what God says to do? Who, who are you really? Don't tell me your faith without works. Show me your faith with your works. Because faith without works is just lip service to God. It's empty slogans and models that fill up the churches today. But the reality is people don't have to live righteously. God forbid that we have to live according to the word of God. There are plenty of churches out there, so-called. You can live any way you want. They won't even notice you. Because the truth is, they don't love you. Those who love you will educate you, and when necessary, they will correct you. But they are already correcting you before they have to do it in a disciplinary means of Literally taking you to task in your sinful life. They do it by teaching you how to do self-discipline first. That's why you're being educated. We come every week. We tell you every week, don't come and eat this table if you're not in Christ. If you're not walking according to the word of God, if you're not living and thinking the way God says to live, don't eat it because you'll trample underfoot the blood of Christ. Every week you're required to recognize whether or not you truly are in Christ. Are you living for him? Are you doing what he commands you to do? It's time for us to come to the table. You want to make a profession of faith? Eat. You don't eat? There's something wrong with your profession. There's something wrong with your life. Paul said, those who eat and don't discern the nature of what God has done for us in Christ, some are weak, some are sick, and some have died. God literally has put them to death for trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. Once you do that, there is no, no remission for sin. You will be sealed up in your sin and you will die in it. Then you're going to find out a hard truth. For eternity, you will pay for your sin. Is it worth it? Paul says we're only here for a short period of time compared to eternity. The absence of time. How much more better to suffer for Christ in this life than it is to not honor him and to die and to go to hell and suffer for eternity knowing had you just yielded to Christ, if you walked in his word, It would all be different. Hell is hot. It's a real place. God says it is. You may think 
I'm getting away with a lot in my life. I got news for you. He's laying it out. He doesn't always judge you. He's long-suffering. Don't mistake God's long-suffering for you getting away with sin. You're only fooling yourself. When he gets to the point that he says enough's enough, he will jerk that rope around your neck and he will strangle you to death. He'll take you out. And it's too late. You can't stand before him and say, well, you know, I really loved you. Go back and read out of Matthew. Many have said in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons? Have we not done this in your name and that in your name? And you know what it says? Depart from me. I never loved you. And by your actions, it's easy to see you've never really loved me. Why would you want to be in heaven? Man, that'd be like being a piano in a church of Christ. They don't even have them. You're out of place. Why would you want to be in heaven when, you're, when your love is sin, rebellion? You think we're going to be able to do that in heaven? <laughs> I got news for you. We will come to the full conformity of the glorification and we will live what we have desired to be holy and righteous. You won't make it. You'd be unhappy. You'd be as unhappy. I don't know if I ever told you I, I heard this story about the prodigal son but it was called the prodigal pig. When the prodigal son came back to the father's house, he brought with him a friend that he had been eating with in the pig trough. And they scrubbed him and they put a napkin around his neck and they said to him, here, sit at the dinner table. Here's your fork. Here's your knife. Eat your food properly. And he wasn't happy. You know why? Because that's not the way he ate. He'd get out and just stick his snout we call it a hog. Some people think that's a motorcycle. <laughs> the snout is the hog, not the whole pig. And he'd just bury it in the slop and just eat it and have it all over his face and everything else. He's a pig. Can you imagine him sitting at a table and he's got a knife and a fork and a thing around his, and he's supposed to just eat properly and do, he ain't going to be happy. Why? He's out of place. I got news for you. You're not going to be happy in hell, but you'd never be happy in heaven if your nature is to sin. And the only place that will be reserved for you it's going to be hot, painful, and with the knowledge that you could have escaped that. My friends daily make a calling and election sure of God. Check your life at the door when you come in. Hearken to the voice of God. It's time to come to school and get your PhD in Christianity. that you could be a teacher too. 
of the real thing. It's all a doctor is. It means doctrine, doctor, teacher. One who heals, corrects. You need to be somebody who can do that too. In your life, in the life of your family, and all the things that God has commanded of you. Shall we pray?